serve as missionaries with MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, in Timor-Leste. Uh, and so you'll be hearing a lot more about that, uh, and we're thrilled that you're here. So why don't you uh, join me in a word of prayer as we come together this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your presence that is always with us, but we recognize is with us in a special way, in a unique way here this morning. Lord, we ask that uh, you would minister to and through Nick and Ruth as they share with us um, out of the things that you have called them to be about and to, and to serve in, in the ways in which that you've called them to serve in your kingdom, that we might be encouraged, that we might grow in the ways that you are calling us to serve in your kingdom as well. So Lord, we pray that your word would be seed that finds our hearts and souls to be good soil that it would grow down deep roots in our hearts, that it would grow up a kingdom harvest that produces good fruit uh, for your name, for your sake, and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen, amen. Thanks so much, Clint, and thank you for having us. Thank you also for those who've been journeying with us and who've been praying for us and undergirding us um, with those very tangible prayers that, that keep us going in a rather unique corner of the globe. So, bon dia, Emma Hotuotu, that means good morning, everybody. Diakalai, how are you doing? And you all should say diak, hopefully. Diak, great, that means you're doing great. So, we are, we are very privileged to be here, and um, yeah, thank you for having us. So, as Clint mentioned, we work for MAF, which stands for Mission Aviation Fellowship. Uh, I encourage you to look them up online if you want to know more about the global work of MAF. But basically, uh, we operate small airplanes in 28 countries around the world, uh, and uh, we have around 130 aircraft. Basically, we're a service-orientated um, missions organization, and so the reason we exist is to be able to help other missionaries uh, NGO workers, humanitarian workers do their jobs even better by uh, getting to remote locations. Um, we also obviously uh, work with local people in those countries who are remote and isolated and give them the opportunity to be able to access much needed services and we'll tell you a little bit more about that shortly. Up on the screen uh, is a small country just to the northwest of the top of Australia you can see called East Timor, Timor-Leste, that's where we're based. Um, if you didn't know where it was until you saw that map, you're in good company because we didn't either until we went. Uh, it's around one hour 20 flight from Darwin across there, roughly the distance from Auckland to Christchurch. So in geographical distance, very close, um, but in terms of social distance, and I'm not talking COVID, um, it's extremely far. It's uh, the, the, the difference between going from a, a very first world uh, environment in Darwin uh, although if you've been to Darwin, you might disagree with me. Um, <laughs> uh, across to a, a place which most certainly is not. Uh, there is a lot of suffering and a lot of need, and it is actually the poorest country in all of Southeast Asia, which is why MAF is there. Nick's just going to show you our team. So we're, we're just a, fra a fragment of the most amazing little math family team. Um, as you can see, we're predominantly a Timorese team, which we love and we have really enjoyed getting to understand the thinking that underpins a lot of the disability and the disease that we are seeing. So Nick and the pilots in the back um, operate medivacs, medical evacuations, roughly 300, over 300 a year, which is the, um, we're the, it's one of the smaller math programs in the world and we do about 75% or more of the world's, of MAF International's medical evacuations. Roughly half of those are women in quite traumatic and very difficult stages of labour. 
um, and I'm privileged to be able to work with some of these families in the local hospital and with my Tamarese colleagues. So we are just going to, um, Nick can sort that out for me, we, we are going to be reflecting, it's a thread through our talk is from 2 Corinthians 6, um, which is where Paul talks about those in their poverty who are making many rich. And I'm hoping that we can all be challenged in this as we continue to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, those in their poverty are making many rich, those who are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing and those who have nothing and yet possess everything. And I'm not just meaning the Timorese, I'm meaning us. And I think that in that we are actually, we are deeply brothers and sisters in Christ. When I think of, we think of poverty, we live quite graphic and brutal daily poverty in the tropics, um, eight degrees south of the equator. There's a lot of um, very uh, confronting things that our family have had to learn how to, to deal with and it's, it's never easy, it doesn't get any easier, it becomes more heartbreaking the more you know. Um, but when I think of poverty, we're thinking emotional, spiritual, psychological poverty, financial poverty, poverty, health literacy, which is something I'm really passionate about when it comes to women's health and public health education, which our boys have also been volunteering in. So, that, But even that poverty isn't a barrier to many Timorese in terms of their capacity to be generative and generous and to be giving out from. They don't say, oh, I'm far too tired today or I I'm, 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 can barely walk or my diabetes is, is, too, is too debilitating. Or they, Out of their absolute poverty, they are still making many rich. Um, they, are, they, they know how to rejoice despite huge, ongoing, inescapable sorrow and relentless suffering. And that's something that we would like to, to leave as a bit of a 2024 challenge as well. And we'll come back to that in a few ways through our talk. The term missionary is one that uh, conjures up a, a picture of some very anointed people in a foreign location doing tremendous works for Jesus. And, uh, well, that might be true on occasion. Um, we like to say that actually there is really no such thing as a missionary in that context. In fact, actually, we're all missionaries because we're all doing exactly what I've just described. Uh, and, and we lose sight of that sometimes when we live in places like Christchurch and we think, well, the missionaries are all, all overseas working in hard, uh, hard environments. But actually, we're all called to have those same conversations, those same interactions, um, and to, to speak the love of Christ to those people that God brings across our path. Uh, so, yes, we can all do it. For us, sometimes uh, it's a little bit more difficult. I've got a slide up on there, uh, the screen right now from the Reverend Horsburgh. He, he wrote, a missionary's life is more ordinary than is supposed. It's plod rather than cleverness, which is often the best missionary equipment. Um, and I think that really speaks into the fact that it's, it's in many senses unremarkable. It's doing small things each day. It's doing little things with great love. Uh, when we have the opportunity to do it. Of course, we get to, uh, to do that in East Timor, and that does bring a few extra challenges with it. Just some fly-on-the-wall moments. The power and water do cut off during our showers, um, so there's, we're left dripping with shampoo in the pitch black, and there's actually nothing that can be done about it because the backup generator fails to work. Or there's, there, Anyway, lateral thinking in all kinds of situations. 
Um, our 10-year-old at the time um, was wanting to learn to wield a machete before he had, had his, um, got his machete training licence, so, and wanting to help clear the garden with our team race friends. It was a little bit, um, that was a bit scary. But now they can all, if you, anyone wants to come and have a, a holiday of sorts, <laughs> or a short-term mission stint or something, and these team will, um, we, they can whip you up a drinking coconut in no time. So... Um, there's not enough power to run the popcorn maker or anything else for that matter, even the coffee grinder, you know, kind of rather essential in Timor. Um, so often the, the puffed kernels, which our Timorese um, boys love to, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a crowd pleaser there. It's hard to get them out, so we have to invert the machine. And for Kiwis to be surrounded by the smells of burning plastics and drain flies and rotting cabbage out of various holes in the floor is also not very pleasant. We're quite enjoying clean green New Zealand for a little bit. Um, but that's, who are we to judge people burning their rubbish? Actually, who, how can we judge? Because there is no other form of rubbish disposal. So how can we judge people for deforestation, which is also very vivid as well, with piles of Jenga stacked firewood? That's all that the tamaries have to be able to cook their food. So who are we to say that um, it's... <laughs> We've, we've, had to, we've had to think quite a lot. We've, had, we've been, we sure, been stretched. We sure have. So we like to sum up missions, uh, even in the context of Timor Leste, with all its difficulties, as doing little things with great love, listening with our hearts wide open, and doing what God has called you to do where God has called you to be. And I think you'll agree with me that all of those things are equally as possible for you in Christchurch uh, as they are for us in East Timor. Just a, a little bit um, of context for you. Uh, this slide shows the world split roughly into two halves, and the top light-coloured half is uh, what we call um, the developed world, or the, the West, essentially. Um, we term that as the minority world. I'll explain why in a minute. The bottom half of the map shows the dark-coloured countries there. Um, they are the least developed countries, and they are referred to as the majority world. And the reason for that is because uh, only one quarter of the world's population live in those light-coloured countries, the countries we most readily identify with. Three quarters of the world's population live in the other countries. In our rich countries, we control four-fifths of the world's economy. We're the ones with the money in our pockets. Where all the people live, they control one-fifth of the world's finances. So you can see that immediately we start life with a lot of privilege. And when we're going to work in countries uh, like East Timor, we have to be very careful how we take with us uh, this, this privilege, this um, this uh, blessing that we've been given coming from a country like New Zealand. I've put a slide up here called, uh, that shows the, the relationship between income and happiness, and this might otherwise be referred to as the American dream. It's the way that we tend to uh, interpret how our societies work. And even if we tell ourselves that we don't really think this, actually deep down we kind of really do. Um, and, and that is that the idea is that the harder we work and the more money we earn, in general, the happier we will be. But this survey was done by the United Nations in America between uh, the 1950s and the year 2000, and it shows that the average income of the American family dramatically increased, and the same would be true for New Zealand. During that period, that same period, you can see the red line there is the happiness uh, line, how, how happy people reflected they were. And 
it's quite easy to see that that line has wiggled around, but generally speaking, has trended downwards. Now, if the American dream were true, we would expect that the more we have, the happier we'd be. That's what we're told. But in actual fact, the truth is something entirely different. And so we have to be very careful when we go to uh, least developed countries that don't subscribe to this mantra that we don't inadvertently teach them something which doesn't work. Uh, and it encourages us to view what we do in an entirely different light. It's something our boys noticed when we first moved there. They said, because we had three teenage boys, we still have three teenage boys, um, and they said, Mum and Dad, they, these people have got nothing, and they're so happy. And then, conversely, when we've come back, we've been, we've been gone for, and we've been in Timor for three, for th- for three years, um, and they see their generation, and they've come back into it, and they're like, and everyone's just, and there is, there is a lot of depression and anxiety and that's just, that is continuing to escalate like, like that graph. So it's, it's very, it's, it's pretty confronting stuff, you know. So we're going to tell you two stories right now uh, about two different medical evacuations we've done, both with quite different outcomes uh, that will help illustrate some of the, um, the context with which the people that we work with interpret their, their environment. So you can see this picture on the screen. It's quite a confronting picture. It shows the foot of a 12-year-old girl who I will call Anna, and you can see that her foot is not a particularly healthy colour. So I was called to the enclave of Oakusi, which is about 50 minutes flight from Dili. You can only access it by air or by ship, 12 hours overnight, um, to medivac this girl. Now, I smelt her foot before I saw it, and that gives you some indication of uh, the state that she was in. And you might ask yourself, well, what happened to her that she should be afflicted with something so awful? And the answer is, she was playing in her garden and cut her foot. Now, that's an entirely unremarkable thing to have happen, and it's something that might easily happen with our own children, with our grandchildren, with those that we know. But the difference is that people like uh, Anna don't have access to the same kind of health care that we have. And even if they do have access to Western medicine in in whatever context it's provided there, uh, quite often, culturally speaking, they don't trust it. So in this case, the family uh, spent about three months accessing traditional cures, um, going to the witch doctor, making sacrifices, doing all kinds of um, animistic practices in order to try and bring healing and restoration to Anna's foot. And as I'm sure comes as no surprise to you, that didn't have very much effect. Um, And so something very, very simple translated into something very, very serious. And so we had to bring her back to Dili, um, where we uh, put her in the back of the ambulance, sent her off to hospital, and Ruth's team then took over working with her. As you can imagine, the only way to save this girl's life, to save Anna's life, was for a below-the-knee amputation. So that was the, the best solution, the only solution. Um, everything um, in Western medicine is geared towards prophylaxis and prevention and then rehabilitation, which are various, I've worked in acute and rehab and outpatient settings in the past, and the lack of, of, of a concept, a cultural concept, that actually we could do something to be able to allow Anna to achieve her dream to become a teacher. She's 12, and this, the below-the-knee amputation means she won't be able to go back to school ever. Everything in us and me and in, in others in, in, in a kind of this kind of setting goes kicks into gear and thinks, how can we make this happen? How can we cause this girl to have a future and a hope? How can we be agents of healing, of restoration? 
how can we make her dreams come true? Um, and there are very basic, but there are rehab options and very basic prosthetic options in the country that after many weeks of developing rapport and relationship with the family, coming at it from their cultural mindset and in their language, basically the family said no thanks. And we would take her to the rehab uh, unit to get a prosthesis fitted. Her skin continued to not heal. We worked on getting supplements and things to be able to, to help her skin integrity Basically, everything that we did was, was appreciated, but the family just said the fact that you came and spent time with us in hospital and brought us food and understood and cared and cried and prayed, that's what means the most. And it doesn't mean to say that we don't continue doing these other practical ways of helping, but it's pastoral care in a, in a very big overarching context, which can somehow for me and for us get big enough and stretch to encompass failure unsuccess, our complete powerlessness in the face of um, such, such a grave injury, and the family saying thanks but no thanks. So it's, it's kind of big stuff that we've been grappling with. It's very confronting for people who come from countries like New Zealand because we measure everything in terms of statistics, positive outcomes, uh, the number of people that come to Jesus, the number of people that go home from the hospital healed, uh, the number of you know, um, successful ticks that we can put into boxes that mean something back home and and to be confronted with a situation where someone says actually none of that is important to me I'm just interested in the fact that you showed up is actually quite difficult for us to get our heads around uh, especially as men who you know we like to fix everything don't we um, and and so when we when, when we are actually prevented from doing so either because of uh, the sheer need the sheer volume of need that exists, or because someone says, actually, that's not what I want, um, we have to take a step back, and we have to come at that with a different kind of humility, where we say, well, okay, you know, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? How can we serve you? How can we love you? And what does love look like in your context? The second story uh, that I want to tell you about is um, the little boy on the left. Um, he was run over by a motorcycle. He had his head crushed. And I flew about half an hour to go pick him up. When I saw him, I thought, man, he's not going to survive the flight home. Um, he had um, cerebrospinal fluid coming out of his ear, which is a sign of a, of a fractured skull. Uh, he was in particularly bad shape. Um, so I thought, he's not long for this world. Basically, we prayed for him. We put him in the back of the ambulance and, and essentially said goodbye. Um, a few weeks later... On her rounds, Ruth came across this wee fellow. And amazingly, um, even though there is no specialist care that was able to, to attend to him, even though there, he required um, significant brain surgery, reconstructive surgery to be made well, uh, and, and none of that exists in Timor, uh, even though he found himself in that situation, the great healer had been at work. And there he is looking almost as, as good as new. Um, and so that is a wonderful success story. It ticks all the right boxes uh, for us, and yet we had very little to do with it. And so I think the, um, the learning out of that is that it's God who is in control. It's God who determines these outcomes. It's God who is at work in people's lives in ways that we don't necessarily always understand. And we actually have to be able to take our hands off 
enough to be able to let God be God and to determine those things uh, and just walk out that journey with him, doing those little things with great love when the opportunity arises. And the Christ that we love and know is a very, as we all know, a very uncomfortable Christ. He's the Christ of the bread lines, is what this picture is entitled. He's, this is a post-World War II woodcut of, it's pretty clear who Christ is, but he's got a threadbare cloak on, he's probably got chillblains, he probably smells, he's got a whole bunch of viruses, he's starving, he's not fixing the other people around him who are also in that situation, he's just there. He's not, he does have some light coming out from just who he is in that context. But there's no tryhardism. There's no, actually necessarily, from what I can see, any alleviation of the suffering that he is fully immersed in and present to. And this, I'll try and not start crying, but this is the God who we are so, so privileged to partner alongside in East Timor. Um, and to come face to face with the fact that, we know it's not about fixing things, but even as we struggle to, to bridge the gap between how do we use these, these couple of GA8 air vans that we fly to these districts to bring the love of Christ to isolated people, which we're doing, and then partner with them and, and wrap around them with love and care in the, in the local hospital. How do we do that in a way that has integrity, that is okay with not fixing anything? This is the, this, ironically, this is the Christ that the team are very, very in love with. This is the Christ who they know gets them. And this is the, it's very messy, it's totally unremitting, it's unrelenting, this kind of suffering, this engagement. But this is, this is where the healing, this kind of grassroots companionship and healing comes in. And so we, are, we spend a lot of time being with, and whatever that looks like, in practical ways. Sometimes even when we can't, you know, when words fail and we might lack linguistic proficiency at times, it's not about that even, it's just being with them. One of the questions that you often be asked if you go and talk to people about Jesus in a, in a Western context uh, is, is they'll say, well, I couldn't possibly, possibly believe in a God who permits suffering. And yet that is a question I have never heard a Team Marie's person ask. No one's ever said, why does God allow suffering? Because it's so much a part of their existence. It's so much a part of the fabric of their lives that they don't even think to ask that question. And yet somehow they're able to be at peace with that. And I think that's a, a great challenge to us in the context of where we live, in the context of a society that um, provides us with a, a great backstop in the majority of situations. Um, if, we find ourselves, uh, if we find ourselves without work, we pop down to wins and we apply for the unemployment benefit. If we find ourselves sick, we go off to the emergency department at the hospital. And we might wait a while, but we're going to see a doctor who's been trained pretty well. And most of the time, they're going to be able to tell what's wrong with us. And then after they've given us a diagnosis, they're going to reach into the pharmacy and pull out uh, some kind of medication which they can give us that helps to make our problem go away. For the Timorese people, there's none of that. There's no safety net. They live with that, uh, that incredible possibility of disaster all the time. Uh, and so that brings a great challenge for us as we also share in that suffering. That idea of participating in the sufferings of Christ has got me thinking, because we spend a lot of time um, with this kind of food, it's got me thinking about how food and suffering are really 
interconnected and how suffering is a resource. It's the food of the masses, as they're called, the povu in, Tim in East Timor. Um, and how this kind of food, this is the sharing in the sufferings of Christ, meets, eat, means eating at every level poor people's food, which is what the Timorese call this kind of food, which we actually really, really enjoy. It's actually quite expensive to get here, this kind of food. Um, we love eating it, and the Timorese are like, why are you eating our food? And they ask it in a, that kind of nourishment sense, and they also ask it in another kind of sense. Why? Why are you eating our food with us? Why are you participating in this suffering? And this is where we talk about, we can, it's such an easy doorway into Christ, because this is the Christ who says, as in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, his blessing for poor people, for those who suffer and continue to suffer, and not just in East Timor, but here too. So just soak in these words, even if you're really familiar with them. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Which brings us to compassion fatigue and the concept of care and the fact that, oh my goodness, I can't care any more than I do because I maxed out God and surely you know that and that's something that we identified with when we were living in Christchurch and it's something that's also very, very relevant in Timor-Leste. But I want to encourage us to, to not keep our paws up even when we feel like we've got nothing and we're at the end of our rope. I want to encourage you as you, as you head into 2024 is God calling you, as someone already careworn, to experience his deep participation in your suffering? Blessed are those who find themselves cared for. Or and, is God stretching your capacity to care, to suffer alongside, and if so, with whom? If you're already doing little things with great love, being happy with anonymity, invisibility, lack of thanks. Be encouraged of the importance of how you're already participating in the sufferings of Christ and sharing in those. And the Timorese who live in this tiny country of 38 languages and 42 banana varieties, one banana variety for every language, they have a really big concept of the global connectivity of suffering. And they talk to me about the people, our friends and our family and our church communities in our countries that are praying for them. And they, can, they see God's protection and his provision and his angels in their absolute destitution. It's amazing. Oh. Can I have us back? <laughs> Much and all of that is a great Thank song. <laughs> there we go. Fantastic. So the difficulty that we face we face in East Timor, and I know that you all most likely face uh, this same challenge, is that when we are confronted by an opportunity to share in someone's sufferings, when we are uh, confronted by the opportunity to do something small with great love, when God brings somebody who's needy across our paths, no matter where we are, 
uh, we, we find ourselves in, in this kind of situation. And it's that internal voice that starts speaking to us that can so often derail that moment. Um, and if you're anything like me, you will have heard this. Uh, something happens, and the first thing that pops into your head is, is you say to yourself, well, it's, it's impossible, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Or maybe you find yourself saying, oh, that's too risky because of past experiences that you've had where things have gone wrong. Or maybe you're just uh, you know, a highly intellectual person and you say, well, what is the point? There's so much suffering. There's so many of these people. How can I possibly make a difference? Well, I want to encourage you to listen to that still small voice, that voice of the Spirit who speaks to our hearts. And, and what he says is, give it a try. Just give it a try. Take the risk. Have the conversation. Hug the person. Give them that word of encouragement. Sit with them and love them just for a short moment and see what happens as a result of that. And so in 2024, that's very much our prayer for you. And we want to close by uh, sharing a song with you um, by a man called Chris Rice. And this is about doing just that, taking that small flame of the God life, which is present in each one of our hearts, and sharing it with the people who find themselves in a situation where maybe they have uh, become disconnected from God, where the flame might have extinguished itself, where they need someone to come alongside and just give them a little spark of love and encouragement. Some brightly burning and some dark and cold And there is a spirit who brings a fire Ignites a candle and makes his own Carry your candle and run to the darkness 